first reading will be reading verses 1 to 21 uh, from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountains in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Second reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Victoria. Two stories about power. We'll explain those in a moment's time. Shall I pray? Father, we come before you now with humility and, uh, and in the fear of the Lord. You are God and we are not. We worship you. You are eternal and we are but dust looking for a resurrection, one you promised. You know and we don't, so we seek wisdom. You have the power and we yield. Your, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Yours is the kingdom. Yours the power. Yours the glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 66, verse 16 goes like this. Come and hear. It's an invitation. Come and hear, all you who fear God. Is that you? Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. It's my privilege to tell you what he's, he's done for me tonight. The aim of the uh, series for the next three weeks, uh, the teaching series before, uh, before Lent, is to cultivate or begin to cultivate or to continue something really good and beautiful in our hearts, namely a healthy or an appropriate fear of the Lord, a particular fear of the Lord. It's not about being afraid, as Will pointed out in that story uh, that he read a few moments ago. I had a neighbour in Miller's Point who would have none of this. Uh, she would listen to everything I said about God. She loved and was very attracted to the life of Jesus. But if I mentioned anything about fear, fear as a motivation, fear of the Lord, she would she would even hear the word fear from my lips and she would shut up shop. She'd put up a wall and say, I don't want to listen anymore to what you've got to say. And yet the Bible's full of this positive view of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. At the, uh, the back end of, of Ecclesiastes, after all this sort of search for something meaningful to hold on to, he says, uh, um, after many words, here's the conclusion of the matter. Here's what you need to know. Fear God, fear God and keep his commands. That's it. You know, you could write it on the back of a postage stamp if they weren't sticky. Fear God, keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of mankind, because God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, every hidden thing, whether it's a good hidden thing or an evil hidden thing. Fear God, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Even in the middle of his suffering, Job, the book of Job says God looked at wisdom and he appraised it and he confirmed it and he tested it and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom, to shun evil. That's understanding. In Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis made this point in a genius way. He said this, hush, hush, Said the other four, for now Aslan, the Christ's lion, for Aslan had now stopped and turned and stood facing them, looking so majestic that they felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. You say, what about the New Testament? Surely the Old Testament is full of fear of the Lord. New Testament's all about love. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can just hurt the body. Fear the one who judges body and soul. 
1 Peter 2, Peter says, show proper respect to everyone, oh yes, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the king, first century. Revelation 14, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Psalm 85, surely God's salvation is near to those who fear him. So we're going to get this right. If you don't fear him, then perhaps you haven't taken the first step towards salvation or being saved, or at least a life of wisdom. So we know the scriptures say positively fear God, and yet there's a riddle in the Bible, a riddle I mentioned a moment ago, namely that every time someone is about to fear God, God shows up, or at least a messenger, and says, be not afraid. So you've got these two things, be afraid, be not afraid. You know, have fear, don't have fear. And I want to talk a little bit today about solving that riddle. So we're talking about a fear today, a particular fear of God that addresses and moderates all other fears. And maybe it could be summed up like this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Perhaps that's a way to start. So if you're here in January this year, or Rivendell, we're mining for wisdom in 2020. Salt the flinty rock with our hands, lay bare the mountains, tunnels with the rock, and bring to light hidden things. Not to find silver or gold, but to find the most precious thing of all, a wise life, or wisdom. And since wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, we thought we might begin the year proper talking about the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. We thought we might do something in that space. And the reason we did it is in part because, uh, you know, we can sort of say fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, having even dealt with shunning evil as understanding. We'll get there during the year. But um, some of you might say, look, I heard that stuff on the fear of the Lord a couple of weeks ago, but what happens if you don't feel it? What, what happens if you can't muster up the fear of the Lord? What do you do then? It's a bit like rejoice in the Lord. What happens if you can't muster it up? I think the answer is you don't muster it up. It can't be manufactured and I can't give it to you. It comes because you, because you meet God, the true and living God, by faith. I mean, for Job it was a storm. He needed it. He begged God to show up and uh, explain the suffering. And God turned up to him in a storm. Jesus turned up, um, and we meet God through Jesus Christ, but in the New Testament, touched by the Spirit of God, you meet Him by faith. You come up against the face of God, and you let Holy Scripture guide your approach to Him with the gospel through your blood stream, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what we've said, mining for wisdom in the end is about finding Jesus Christ. Dig, 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 find Jesus Christ, or rather, He finds you. So we need to be afraid, and yet be not afraid. In uh, Star Wars, Luke says to Yoda, I'm not afraid, in sort of boyhood bravado. And Luke, the old seasoned Jedi knight, says back to Luke, oh, you will be. You will be. I think the best way to discover this healthy fear of God is to discover God. And so we're going to explore these three ancient historic theological attributes of God. It's a series on the doctrine of God, really, and how they lead specifically to the fear of the Lord with some implications for life, a wise life. So the three attributes of God are in the middle of page one, omnipotence, uh, omni, 
omniscience, and thirdly, omnipresence. Never done a series on this in my time at St. Philip's. This week, omnipotence, that is, notice omni is through the lot, omnibus, the, the complete package, right? All potency, all power this week, or omniscience, all knowing next week, and omnipresence, he is everywhere present, uh, even with us tonight. So, if you turn back to page 10, you'll see five questions that I want to use to assault the flinty rock with our hands, to uh, lay bare the nature of things. Uh, Five things. Firstly, what is power? Secondly, if God is all-powerful, what can he do with it, with his all-power? Then fourthly, what does he do with his power? If he can do something, does you know, if he can roll over the world, does he roll over the world? If he can do the thing, does he do the thing? With an interlude at point three, what are the alternatives to God's all power? Because there is power in the world. We'll talk about that briefly. And then lastly, how do you get access to this power? Does that sound like five good questions? I think they sound like great questions. <laughs> Firstly, what is power? Well, I don't have to explain it to you. Power is the ability or capacity to do something of your choosing, to act in a particular way. You can be said to have power to do the thing you want to do. It's about being potent in that, in that situation. I was going to say, you know, the definition is not rocket science, but it kind of is. <laughs> the power to do something. Uh, in the New Testament, the word we translate as power is the Greek word dunamis or dynamis, from which we get our word dynamite. Or, come on, brains, or, what is it? Dynamo or dynamic. That is to do something. So God has power. It's like he has ultimate leverage over everything. He can move mountains, for example. He does move mountains. <laughs> you seen a volcano? He also moves hearts. And sometimes I wonder whether the real miracle is moving hearts, not mountains. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross, which is what this is all about, is foolishness, moronic in the Greek, to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the dynamite of God, this message of the cross. The gospel is God's power to move us, to shake us towards a holy and good God. There's our riddle. Why would you want to Pursue the one you fear. Okay. And that's for three weeks, by the way. So um, touch, if there's questions, use the, the Connect card or, or email me. My details are on the back of the zine. It should be said that power is a hot topic right now. Uh, who, like 30 years ago, I don't remember anybody talking about power. Maybe I was in the wrong crowd. Who has power? Uh, who should have power? How do you share it? Who should be giving it up? Are there groups that should be giving it up? I hear that all the time in blogs and, um, and uh, podcasts. And indeed, some are asking the question, is power at its heart always toxic? I think uh, doing life, let alone reading the scriptures, will tell you there's good power and and bad or toxic power, and if any of you have had a parent who used their power when you were a little child, not to hurt you, but to heal you, not to 
but to actually care for you and guide you and to protect you, then you know, of course, in your experience that such a thing is good power. There's also, as we all know, bad power. I don't have to prove that. A survey of despots in nations and bullies at work will prove that point easily. I think the Bible says over and over that God has power and that he has good power. It resides in God. Daniel 4, lots of scripture tonight. Daniel 4, God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. He owns it all, leverage over it all. No one can hold back his hand. There's no wrestle there. Or say to him, what have you done? In Isaiah 40, see the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. And in Isaiah 40, what does he do with that power? Isaiah 40 verse 11, he tends the flock like a shepherd. Gathers the lambs in his arms. Like a strong mother or father who takes care of a little one. He carries those lambs close to his powerful heart. He gently leads those who have young. Why would such a power lead us to fear him? Well, I've never seen a tornado. I have friends who have. Got a lot of American, I'm married to an American, got a lot of American friends. And they tell me that it is terrifying. Anybody here seen a tornado or been in a tornado? Somebody at 4 p.m. had, and I'm like, hand that woman a microphone. She was a bit... Some of you are in jobs, by the way, where you know exactly what, you, what appropriate fear looks like. You know, you're flying 600 people in a m m metal hunk from one side of the world to another. Be afraid. Appropriate fear. Don't muck around. The truth is, I don't fear tornadoes because I don't expect to meet one anytime soon. I don't live and will probably never live in Tornado Alley. But that does not stop me believing the gospel. It doesn't stop me believing news that tornadoes are fearful to be heeded and to be respected in the sense that I wouldn't treat one flippantly. Mind you, I wouldn't love one either. God says, fear me, love me. So there's something personal going on that is not happening in a tornado. But I believe that many of us don't know how to fear God. We treat him like a tornado that we don't expect to meet. But what if I came up against the real God, the real one, and I asked myself the question, who is this? How present is he in the world? Does he see me? Does he see what I do? Does he look into my heart? Does he judge me? Is he bigger than me? Is he safe? Again, Narnia, safe? Avaslan, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good of Jesus Christ. He's the king, I tell you, of Aslan. What if, like a tornado, I discovered that I didn't have any control over him, that I couldn't put in a dollar's worth of religion and get out a cool, fizzy can of embrace from God from time to time when I'm ready for it? What if I discovered that God was omnipotent? That is not just potent or powerful, but all-powerful. That he didn't just have a slice of the pie, he owned the pie. That he has the ability to do what he wants without opposition or challenge. This is our God. Second question, what can God do with his all-power? And the answer is, anything he wants. All things are possible 
with God. It's one of the reasons I wholeheartedly believe in resurrection. I get it. I'm secular. I live in a secular age. I'm educated, all that. I believe in a resurrection from the dead. One of the reasons I believe it is that Jesus rose from the dead. The other reason I believe it is because I can't see any other hope for a human being headed to death. But the third reason I believe it is that I want to say to a skeptical, hard, and cynical world, I believe that God has all the power. Who else can raise the dead? We sung it in our first song tonight. Some examples of things he uh, can do, and these are on page nine. For those of you who have already looked down this list, you'll notice the error already. The category error is already there. And those of you who like to do crosswords have already found it. Some examples of things he can do. He creates life and he takes life away. He knits you together in in your mother's womb and he can take life away. Job said, shall we accept good from the Lord's hand and not also calamity? He can sustain and he can let go. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word, Hebrews 1. He can raise and bury nations, raise up leaders and take them down. Daniel chapter 4, the sovereign, most high, is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, even Donald Trump's America, you see. So relax, you see. He's he's, uh, sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. That news, by the way, doesn't rubber stamp a leader. Oh, no. There's a stack of evangelicals and others who've got that wrong. But what it does tell is the rest of us who trust God, he raises leaders and buries them in the end, and nations rising and falling. He can reveal and he can hide. Jesus said uh, to his Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and the cynical and the hard-hearted and the stubborn and revealed them to adults, in other words, and revealed them to little children, Jesus says, whose hearts are soft and who are willing to believe. He can give and withhold. God has the power to bind and to wound. He has the power to, there was a mistake, did you pick it? To judge and to forgive, they should be reversed. He has the power to forgive and to judge if the left-hand column is to build up and the right-hand column is to take down. He has the power to win and even appear to lose. And he has the power over life and death. You run your finger down that left-hand column with the word forgive moved over and you can begin to understand the beauty and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His story for me that the judge of heaven and earth would forgive my sins by this apparent loss on the cross of Jesus Christ that he might win over all other powers that Jesus Christ would suffer death in order to give me life. That's dunamis. It's dynamite. Amen? One of the things we want to say uh, for those of you who doubt the power of God is the Bible would say, open your eyes. Everything you see, every breath you take, everything of beauty, everything of power is at his hands. That's what the scriptures say. The stars are like his handiwork. He fiddles with them like an instrument. So if you've ever wondered at the world or been afraid of it, plenty to be afraid of, if you've seen its power in a rising storm, 
um, then you're witnessing something of the power of God. You think there's nothing beyond what you see, hear, taste, touch, and smell? You are in error. Be aware of rejecting an omnipotent God and be aware of the implications of rejecting the impotent God. Let me take an aside and talk briefly, thirdly, about alternatives to God's all power. Because power exists in our world, we all know it, and many of you hold it, the levers, in various spaces in your work, family, neighbourhood and life. Power exists, governments, leaders, in the people, in democracy. In other words, if, the, if power in the world is a pie, then there are many parts to it, and the way we handle that in boards and parliaments, etc., is an important uh, matter uh, for good governance. But if there's not a God who owns the pie or is above it all, then it does mean that the pieces of the pie can be struggled over. If there's only pieces of the pie and not someone above it all, then there is an inherent struggle in the universe. And I really am no social commentator, and I don't fully understand, you know, I've done some history, but I don't fully understand history, but I would have said that Marx's inherent struggle, in part because there isn't a God, is in part about this struggle for power, who should have it, should be given to the proletariat, etc., etc. But if you can see, of course, the wake of violence left behind such an ideal, then you'll begin to see some of the problems when you believe that there is no God above it all, but a struggle, of course, there's always people who then take complete control. You know, four legs good, two legs bad, some, everyone's equal, some are more equal than others. This, of course, leads to chaos in our world. Humans have wrestled with this since time immemorial. In ancient times, they saw the world as a dangerous place with many powers, many gods, many spiritual gods who are at war with each other. You know, if you've watched any Disney film based on an ancient, uh, you know, Moana, for example, it's all about other gods and how they interact with each other. Most of these gods do not care about humans, but humans cared about them, and so they turned up to the temples to placate uh, the gods, and they, they prayed to the gods or the spirits or the ancestors in the hope of luck or victory over an enemy or simply of a good crop to sell. It's called paganism, and in the Bible, this comes up mostly as Baal worship, but that's pretty common in its day, even if it wasn't Baal worship. On another day, by the way, I'd love to discuss with you whether we are, in fact, as a society, returning back to that place. Uh, because we're rejecting a God as a society and uh, prayers are meaningless and should be re- hashtag thoughts and prayers are a joke. Um, and look, you know, maybe as a society we're okay right now, but what happens to the children of that generation or the grandchildren of that generation? Do we return to our v- sending vibes? You know, our thoughts are with you. Uh, and I, I know what they're saying, but, you know, they're saying I'm thinking about you, but d- when does it come, when does it become superstition or good luck or crossing your fingers. They feared the gods instead of fearing the one true God and Judaism spoke into that society but it led to a whole bunch of fears. Now you and I say we're enlightened these days um, but you and I see the world as a dangerous place in relationships. Me too proves that. Relationships are dangerous. In the environment, climate change proves it. 
Who hasn't felt some fear over the last couple of months? And in politics, just look at America or Australia, a lot of fear, a lot of judgmentalism, a lot of finger-waving. But we don't believe in a God anymore who owns the pie, who's above it all, who is omnipotent. And so we reject thoughts and prayers as meaningless, well, prayers anyway. And then we appeal then, you know, since thoughts and prayers are meaningless, we appeal to the only power left to appeal to, which is, of course, human power and usually governments. And so we say to governments, act. And it's your right as a citizen to do so, but I think there's been a shift. I think maybe 30 or maybe 50 years ago, and I'm aware of the 1960s and what was going on there, but I, in another era, I wonder whether this sort of centred belief in God that he was over it all meant that you didn't ladle human government with power it couldn't have or couldn't keep. We now put onto politicians burdens they can't carry, and we say something like, Morrison, do something. And I want him to do something, don't get me wrong, but he's dealing with a party and a parliament. The guy's not God, and nor is anybody on the left side of politics, but I'm not trying to be partisan here. I'm just saying, you, we live in a complex world, but I think now when you remove God and you have this centered trust that there's a God above it all, that's got it in his hands, that he'll do his thing. And since we're now trusting in governments, and that's what we're doing, by the way, even if, even if we hate them and berate, berate them and depose them, in the end we're trusting them to do the thing because they've got the answer because there is no God, I believe that society will naturally become more fractious. And I think you've seen it over the last 10 years. Why? More is at stake. Don't give me your thoughts and prayers. More is at stake than ever before. And so we treat politicians like gods and governments like throne rooms where wars are waged one against another. They feared spiritual gods, we fear society, and instead of a centered fear or awe of God, we have all this judgmentalism. But we're made, created to fear the one true and living God. Andrew made the point on Rivendell that there's no definition of fearing God, but God gave Israel a story a narrative in which to say, if you want to know what fear looks like, look at that. And he said it was Exodus chapter 20, where the nation was constituted at the foot of Mount Sinai, the first reading, where God gave them his ten commandments, not your ten dreams, by the way, his ten commandments, to I mean thunder and lightning. Exodus 20 verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. That's what it is to stand in awe of God, to bow before him. They stayed at a distance. You don't have to. I'll tell you why in a moment. They stayed at a distance and they said to one man, one person, Moses, you go up. We're not going to go up because if we go up, we'll surely die. That's fear of the Lord. But here it is, riddle, riddle this. Moses immediately said to the people, be not afraid. Why? Moses goes on and says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You won't be able to just do whatever you want to do. You'll have to find out what God uh, believes and, and is right and wrong and then do the thing he wants you to do because you fear him. The people remained at a distance, we're told, and Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Fourth, what does God do with his all power? The answer is he lays it down. Here's a surprise of the Christian gospel and the thing we celebrate, that God is humble. He's mighty to save, 
but Jesus laid down his life for us. We are like the people trembling before God, and we say, one, go ahead. Approach the thick darkness where God is. Mediate for us. Show us it is good and forgiving and full of grace and power. Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses who laid down his life for us. And this is our gospel. This is our good news. The news about Jesus Christ, Philippians 2 verse 6, who being in nature God, humbled himself, became obedient to his Father, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He laid down his life for us so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, and confident to approach the mountain, to approach God with confidence and joy. Jesus didn't stay dead. Uh, God, his Father, raised him from the dead so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and not your boss that you're afraid of and not a government or a despot or a dictator or a prime minister. Every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did the one person who had all the power do? He gave it up in love and humility. That's our God, only to take it up again in resurrection so that he is Lord and there is no other. What's the secret then behind the riddle uh, of the fear of the Lord? That every person who approaches God afraid is told, be not afraid. The grace of God, this powerful and holy God, is the answer to the riddle. Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. How do you access this power, fifth and finally? Well, you need to meet God, who sits enthroned above it all. Some might say, but where is this tornado that I might be afraid? The answer lies in next week's message. He is omnipresent. The tornado, God, is everywhere. He sees you. He sees what's in your heart. That's why we began our service today by saying, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Come back next week. But I want to say that you have three tools to put in your toolbox, your wisdom toolbox to do life. First, humility before a holy God is now foundational. It's built into the nature of things and into the character of God. It's not just a good idea by business people for their company. Your attitude, said Paul, should be the same as the one who, being in God, gave it all up. Consider others better than yourself. Humility is required. Second, trust Jesus, not governments. Don't trust in a human being. Don't trust the force. If you're a, don't trust in superstition or in other powers. Multiple completing powers will naturally provide an inherent instability in our world, and it leads to fear of things, not the fear of God. Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? So third, be not afraid. Be confident. He's good, I tell you. There is a fear of God that addresses and moderates all other fears, a perfect love, indeed, that drives out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment. That's been taken away. Amen? Amen. 
This week I want to leave you with a thought that I'm going to raise with you next week and you've got to look up at me to see it. I want you to take it home with you. I want to invite you today to believe that there is a God above you and at the same time a God below you or the same God is above you and below you. And this space here is the space in which to do wise living or wise life. You've got to know two things. You've got to know that God is above you he created you, he owns you, his will will be done, he sees you, he'll judge you, he's the judge of the living and the dead. I knew this for the first 18 years of my life, and I've got to tell you, I was very afraid of God. It wasn't inappropriate, it just wasn't complete. But I discovered at university at age 18 that the same God that's above me is also below me, holding me up by his powerful hand, loving me, filling me with his grace and the power of his spirit and forgiving me and cleaning up my life. This is the space in which to do life. If God is merely above you, then you'll live in angry fear of him, perhaps like the reason my neighbor doesn't want to hear about it. If he's below you but not above you, you'll take him for granted. You'll put that dollar in re of religion, but it's still on your terms. There'll be no fear of God before your eyes. But in this space, this wonderful gospel space where life is done in the spirit, that's the place in which to live a wise life. Fear him. Be not afraid. Let's pray. Father, we want to have an appropriate fear of you that makes us want to bow down and, and yield and, and, uh, and stand in awe of you and cease to treat you like you're a tornado in another country or a, a cat to sit on our lap from time to time to give us some happiness. We reject that. God, it, he, he, this is not the true and living God. And instead we embrace you, the true and living God, who sent your Son to give up his life, to die for us on a cross, to humble himself. We choose that story. We choose this Jesus as our Lord. Father, grant us this power in Christ's name. Amen.